following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. We're going to continue in our encouragement series through the book of Philippians in chapter 2. And this morning we'll read from verse 12 to 18. Uh, let's find our place, read together. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be poured out, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also also should be glad and rejoice with me. Isn't it true that, at least what I find often, is right after some of our favorite passages in the Bible come very complex and sometimes difficult to understand verses. Last week we just we read through uh, the, the humility of Christ, having the mind of Christ, and how he humbled himself and became obedient to the, in the form of a servant, became human, how God became human and died for us. And now we find a verse that, is, um, well, that I've been sweating bullets all week in anticipation to talk to you about. But I'm so excited to enter into this. It is a beautiful, amazingly wonderful passage. Early on in in the opening of chapter 1, as you may recall, Paul expresses his deep affection for the Christians in the Philippian church uh, who are receiving this letter. And if you remember, this is where Paul says, I thank God for you all. I'm praying for you. I'm rooting for you. I long for you with the affection of Christ. And I, I plead with God through prayer that you will grow in your love and grow in your faith. And then he goes and, and then he encourages them. We see this amazing picture of his affection. And now in verse 12, we, we see this again where he calls them his beloved. He says, my beloved. And this is what he appears to be doing. He is assuring them of his affection for them, his love for them, his intention in speaking to them about different things. I love you so much. I care for you. And God loves you. And what I'm about to st- say might sting a little. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You remember what, this, what we're calling this series, right? It's called the Book of Encouragement. We've walked through this for several weeks. What place does a phrase like this have in the Book of Encouragement? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And more importantly, what does this phrase have to do with the gospel, with the love of God, with His grace, with His mercy, with the good news that Paul has been talking about all along? This is a great encouragement that we're going to tackle this morning. Two things. What is the biblical understanding of working out our salvation? What does this mean? And secondly, what are the biblical expressions? What does it mean to, to work out and how do we do this? How do we express this kind of faith in our life in a way that doesn't compromise uh, scripture 
in the message of the gospel. So he gives us understanding, and then he gives us three expressions. First, let's look at this understanding. Let's understand what does a, place, a verse like this have to do uh, with the gospel. There is a sort of fear. There's a sort of fear of God that's very good. This is one of the marks of the early church, one of the things that was so commendable, some of the things that, that made the church grow so fast was a fear of God. Maybe you're familiar with one of the uh, most well-known places in Scripture this is talked about, and that's Proverbs chapter 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's a sort of fear of God that drives a person to the arms of Christ. The kind of worshipful, put-in-our-place, odd fear that inspires obedience and worship. This is how Aslan is described in the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, that he is a good lion, but he is dangerous. And this inspires an awe, put-in-your-place obedience and reverence. It was several years ago uh, during a homecoming event at the University of Arizona where we went to see this bonfire. So during the celebration of homecoming on the night before it all started, they had a bonfire right there on the mall. And we said, this will be cool. Let's go and see what this is all about. And we see these wooden pallets stacked up 30 feet into the air. And we thought, oh, that's pretty cool. And, and we, everybody got real close and we kind of hovered all around the wood and then they began to light it and the fire crept up this tower and, and shortly after, it was just engulfed in this very, very hot fire. And you see the crowd just kind of like, whoa, and they kind of back off a little bit. And you feel, I remember feeling, well, this is, this is fun. I wanted to come and be a part of this, but this is nothing to mess with. This is terrifying, and yet it's very beautiful. It's awe-inspiring. And standing in front of a fire like this, you know your place. That's a raging fire. I am a man. I know who wins this every time. This is the kind of healthy fear that we should have with God. The kind of fear that motivates us to put our faith into practice. That moves us to act in obedience. I know who I am. I know who God is. I'm put in my place. Paul has been boasting in the gospel, the work of Jesus on our behalf, that he loves us and forgives us and saves us by his unconditional love. We call this book the book of encouragement. We could even as easily call it the book of joy. Joy is used, I think, 17 times or so in, in the book of Philippians. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Doesn't it seem like an odd book that uses joy so much to have this phrase, fear and trembling. And the choice of words, and I thought, and maybe you have thought, well, maybe what's the Greek, Pete? You know, I care about the Greek now with a verse like this. You get into the, you get into the Greek and you're like, okay, you know, fear, what's that Greek? Well, it's, 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 it's phobos. It's like phobia. That's where we get the word phobia, arachnophobia. It's like, okay, well, what about trembling? Maybe we messed up there. Well, the Greek word is traumas, where we get the word trauma. And so we're like, okay, fear and trauma, now it's worse. Okay, let's go back to the English. Let's, uh, what, what, is, what does that say? See, this, this verse, Paul is being very careful with his word choice, as he always is, and it's not meant to be softened. This passage, these words, are not meant to be tamed. They are meant to communicate exactly what we 
think they communicate. Fear and trembling. The Bible clearly teaches us that the, about the role of faith in salvation. Faith is the instrument of our salvation. And the work of Jesus, not our work, is the basis of our salvation. We believe and we are saved. This is what the Bible says. What must I do to be saved? Believe. We believe and we are saved. And in some ways, this is, it's, it's that simple. In a way, salvation is that simple. Believe and you are saved. It is a transfer of hoping in our salvation and what we can offer and the good that we can do and resting in Jesus' perfect work for us, His free gift, His, His grace for us. And this lies at the heart of biblical Christianity. We are saved by God's grace through faith, not of our own doing. And without taking anything from that, without taking anything away from the integrity of that message, The Bible teaches us that we should and must thoughtfully examine ourselves as it relates to the genuineness of our faith, of our belief, of our confession. So much so to the point that there is no knowing God as our Savior without knowing Him and walking with Him as our Lord. We cannot separate those two. And we mentioned last week that we're not only meant to like Jesus, to appreciate Jesus, to be glad about what he has done for us, we are meant to follow him. In other words, there are real symptoms of our faith when it is genuine. There, is real, there are real symptoms of our belief when we truly believe in Jesus. It looks like a, a growing love for God and a, and a love for Jesus and love for others. An increasing fruitfulness in our own life the fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, an increasing measure of these things being uh, conformed in us, a growing desire for holiness in our walk with the Lord, a reliance on the power of God and not on our ability, a growing motivation for the glory of God in our life, like do all things for the glory of God. There's an increased desire to see that happen a loving witness to the world, like we actually want people to know Jesus. All of these things, these are all symptoms of a genuine faith, a genuine belief in God. So the intent behind Paul's encouragement is not to add something, another criteria to salvation, but to qualify what an ongoing life of genuine faith looks like. What does it look like for someone who trusts Jesus? What does it look like from that point of conversion to to in their life, into their life? How do they live? How do they act? How do they work? How do they put effort into their walk with the Lord? So it's, it's a pressing forward. It's a joyful tension in resting in Jesus and striving towards Him. There's a situation in the Bible that illustrates this really well. And it's a story in, in Acts chapter 27. Paul, the writer of this, of this letter to this church, he, was, he, he had a tough life. He was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was uh, near death several times. And this story in Acts 27 talks about uh, the time he was shipwrecked on a ship with 275 other men. Huge boat. And they were traveling from, from Asia to Rome. And, and they get stuck for over two weeks. 14 days they get stuck here in this raging 
uh, storm. So much to the point, this is so bad, that everyone on the boat was convinced that they were going to die. Convinced. They, they, there was no hint of hope in them. Everybody thought they were going to die. Even Paul, he thought, this is going to be the way I go. And just when they were about to abandon ship, Paul is visited by one of God's angels. And the angel tells Paul, Paul, not a single one of you on this boat is going to perish. Not a single one. But the ship is going to be destroyed. It's going to break apart. But not a single person will die. And it says that Paul believed him. He believed in God. And he goes to the rest of the crew and he says, this is what happened. But, and take heart. I have faith in God. I believe in what he has said. And he will do exactly what he has promised. We will not die. Not a single one of us. And so some men begin to lower down a, a lifeboat. And they try to abandon ship because it's still, the, the, the storm is getting worse. And the ship is, is taking on water and breaking apart. And so they abandon ship. And Paul says, no, come back. This isn't what God has promised. If you leave, you will die. And if you stay, you will live. And so it's, he says that we see that he, they even cut the ropes off of the boats and send the boats off alone into the ocean. Everybody comes back on. The crew hasn't eaten for 14 days. This shows you how bad the storm was because they're tending to the ship. They're trying to stay alive. 14 days, no one has had food. Paul comes to them and says, you better eat something because God has promised that you will survive and I don't want you to die of starvation. And so they eat and we see that they get their strength. And then he says, now that you're strong, let's, let's get back to work and let's throw things off the boat to lighten the load. And so they cast things off the boat and they throw off all the cargo. Everything that's not bolted down, they, they throw off. And the next morning they make it to an island and the ship cracks, it breaks apart onto the rocks into a million pieces and they swim to shore and not a single person dies. Now here's the crazy question. You might think, well, this is a great story. What does it have to do with anything? If Paul believed that he was not going to die because of the promise of God, why was he working so hard? Why did he care what the crew did? Why encourage everyone to eat so that they wouldn't die of starvation? Why not sit back and play a game of poker with the rest of the crew and say, guys, we're, we're good. God has promised us, we believe, and so it doesn't matter what we do. God promised Paul, you will not die on this boat. If Paul dies on the boat, God's promise is not fulfilled. God proves to be a liar. I want to have a conversation with Paul about this shipwreck, about these things. I want to ask him some questions, and it might sound like this. Paul, if you truly believed in God, that you would not die that night, but that you would be saved, why did you work so hard to survive? And he would say, because I was working out my salvation with fear and trembling. But didn't you believe that God was good enough? Didn't you believe that faith is enough? I mean, isn't what's in your heart the most important thing about what you believe to be true about what God has promised to you? Paul might say, it was my faith that compelled me to act. It was my trust in the promise of God that motivated each and every step. It was my hope in the grace of God that overflowed into passionate effort to acquire the very thing that, that was already mine. 
It was God working in me to will and to work all that he desired to come to pass. My salvation, my rescue. It was the grace of God, the promise of God that made me work so hard. What if your faith didn't lead you to move and to act? Paul would say, then my faith was no faith at all. And lastly, if I were to say, Paul, who saved you? Who saved you on that night? He would say, God saved me. I am alive because of the grace of God. Now let's go back to our passage. Chapter 1, verse 6 that we've discussed before, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And then at the end of chapter 1, he says that the good work of even believing, the good work of faith, that you have in the gospel is God's work in you to believe. You believe because God has given you that desire to believe. And so since God will complete his work in you, work out your salvation. Is everybody thoroughly confused? (laughs) Work out in your life what God is working in. Paul is describing what a godly trust in the life of faith looks like. What does it look like for a follower of Jesus to trust in him? The simple question is, how do I grow as a Christian? How do I come to enjoy the blessings promised to me by God, knowing that they are a gift of his grace, undeserved? The answer is Philippians 2, 12-13. Whenever we encounter a difficult passage like this, that stretches our brain and it stretches our heart, we must remember that difficult biblical questions can only be answered with biblical answers. So when we are confused in Scripture, we go to Scripture to defend itself, to answer these questions. And genuine faith, when we ask what does it mean to believe in Jesus, it is this. It is a working out as we are trusting in. One, it's trusting in God's promise. We are glad that we, have, do not, we don't have to be anxious about what God feels about us. We never have to be good enough for God to love us. We don't have to walk on spiritual eggshells. If we disappoint God and mess up, then we are going to be destroyed by Him. We believe in Him. We rest in His completed work. This is what it means to trust in Him, that the basis of our Faith and salvation is, in, is because of Christ, his perfect righteousness. He did it perfect, and so I believe in his gift to me. And then we work out our faith by obeying Jesus. We work hard in our lives to live as obedient children, working hard in our lives to honor him, to please him, to be obedient to him. We work hard to work out what he's worked in in us. Because he says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, trusting God is not like doing the trust exercise where we get on the table and we close our eyes and we fall back into the arms of God. Trusting God is not this way. It says, I I trust you, but I probably shouldn't be standing up on a large table with my eyes closed. That's just not wise. People are going to get hurt. Someone shouldn't, you shouldn't do that. Trusting in God is, is the result of 
of the working out of our salvation because God is working in us. It is, is a, it is an eyes wide open approach to trusting in God. It is an eyes wide open pursuit of what we already have in Jesus and what we hope for and what we hope to achieve and acquire and we hope to inherit because we are promised that we already have it. To will and to work for his good pleasure. What does that mean? To will. This means that the desire to do what is good, that affection, that motivation, the desire to do what is good, is God working in us. We want to do this because God is softening our hearts. He is giving us ears to hear and eyes to see. He is giving us a heart to feel. He is giving us a he, uh, he is allowing us to be prone to want Him, to love Him, to have an affection for Him, to work. This means that God also works in the believer, in the person who trusts in Him, to actually make choices so that the desires, so that the result that He desires comes to pass. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for for His good pleasure. What God desires for you in your life, God is both giving you the desire to pursue it and he is causing us to make the decisions that bring about that end. Paul's trust in God was manifested like this. Believing God, which meant resting in the hope of his salvation. Believing God, I will not die in this boat. And it was manifested in a second way. Working his tail off to survive. Does that make sense? Trusting in God, content in who he is, and working his tail off. Not in order to achieve it, but because of God's promise that he already has. Working out our salvation with fear and trembling is a synonym for trusting in God. We must always recognize God as God. We recognize that he is God by believing and trusting in him. What he says is right. We recognize that He is God by how we live and why we live and, 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 and the way that we live. We recognize that He is God by striving for a life of holiness because He's commanded us to live that way. I've been reading through a book called Kingdom Calling with some of, some of you from the church and by Amy Sherman. And, and here's a quote in there from, uh, she's quoting another guy, Dallas, or not another guy, she's a woman. She's quoting a guy, Dallas Willard, and here it is. It says, The disciple is the one who, intent on becoming Christ-like, systematically and progressively rearranges his affairs to that end. Those terms, systematically and progressively, sound like hard work, and they are. And that is perfectly legitimate. Why? Because there is a great difference between earning and effort. There There is no room for earning in the Christian life. But effort is something different. When we are trusting in God, what is the work then? What is the effort? What is the grace-motivated effort that we are called to? What is the work of genuine faith? And I'm glad that we asked this because this is where exactly where Paul goes. He doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't tell us to work it out. He expects, expects us to say, well, what does this look like then? What does it look to have this grace-motivated effort where I'm working really hard not to earn favor with God, but because I have earned favor with God, to acquire all that has already been promised to me? 
Let's look at these verses now. First one is to have, to work. This is for us all. Work on having a humble dependence on God. Our passage says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Our American society is by far the most prosperous culture that has ever, ever been seen. Except for the very poor, everyone has everything that we need, and most of us have everything that we want. And ironically, we are also one of the most discontent cultures that the world has ever seen. I think this means that when we complain, we sound like we don't trust in God. When we grumble, when we dispute, when we bicker, when we fight and quarrel with others, it is saying that we don't trust God regarding this. We really don't believe that we have what he says we have. Have you noticed that the perfect remedy for grumbling and complaining is gratitude? You can't do both at the same time. You cannot be thankful and yet complain because they're, they're opposed to one another. The more we realize what we have and how it's a blessing, the less we grumble, the less we complain. This is why I think, as I reflect on my own life, why children grumble so much. They have yet to acquire the capacity and understanding for what they have. They only think about what they don't have. So their world that they live in is not, wow, I'm so glad that I have this. Imagine if I did it. They expect to have it, and what they don't have, they want, and so they whine and they complain. This is important because look at what Paul says. He says, act like children of God. Like children of God. Why are you complaining about anything? Long lines, interruptions, miscommunications, misunderstandings, traffic jams, inconsiderate bosses, messy neighbors, clean neighbors, depending on who you are, (laughs) crying babies. I mean, why are you complaining? Why am I complaining? Why do we complain about anything? It's because we don't know what we have. Like children, like little children, we only think about what we don't have in that moment. In the world that does not know God, our Bible tells us, show them that you are a child of a very loving, a very generous, a very good God who has given you everything. Act like that child who has it all and knows that he or she has it all. This will help you be a light to the world, a shining bright light in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, as he says. We are not told and we are not meant to remove ourselves from the world because it is broken. We are to enter into it and to be a light. Working out our salvation means that we do not remove ourselves from culture, but we enter into it, we engage into it, we work cheerfully unto the Lord in all that He's given us, and we proclaim the goodness of Jesus, who has given us everything, like good children of God, knowing what we have. You think, well, I'm not a missionary. I'm not a light to the world. I wouldn't know how to begin to be a missionary. Eyes down, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. You do this, boom, you're a missionary. Congratulations, everybody. You're beginning to be, you're becoming a missionary. You're becoming a light to the world. As simple as that. Do that. 
This is work, is it not? Work. Hard work to depend on God, to have a humble reliance on Him, to remind yourself that even though you might be dissatisfied or uncomfortable, look at what you have in Jesus. Stop whining. Be thankful. You have everything. A child of God. And the world, I promise, will be utterly confused if you do that. And they will ask. and say, what is wrong with you? Why are you doing this? Don't you care that they are taking disadvantage of you? And you would say, what can they take from me? If I have everything, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Nothing can be subtracted. Nothing can be added that we don't already have. Here's another work that we are encouraged to do. Work on the state of your hearts. By grace, in, in, in 2000, 15 years ago, I became a Christian. A very proud, a very arrogant man was humbled. And there were some very deep-rooted patterns of how I lived that were hard to break. After a long season of difficulty, I realized that I trusted Jesus for my salvation. I believed that he died for me and, and, that, and that by faith in him, I would, I would be saved. But I didn't, the reality was everything else in my life was up to me. I trusted him for my salvation, but I trusted in myself for everything else. And so it was a, an attitude of thank you for saving me. I've got it from here. And this was an important verse for me to, to really wrestle with, and that was John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. This assessment of, this is, these are Jesus' words. This assessment by Jesus is not what only happens to non-Christians. This also happens to Christians every day. He seeks to steal uh, and to kill and destroy and there is nothing else that our enemy does. There is nothing else that the devil does than those things. There is nothing that the devil offers that is good. There is no benefit to sin. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy our relationships, our marriages, by appealing to our desire to make it about us, about our right and our perspective, rather than in humility, as Paul tells us, serving one another, and seeking to outdo one another with honor. He seeks to kill, steal, and destroy the fruit of our work by convincing us that our work, our job, is something to be worshipped, that this is where we find our value, in our success, in our fruit, in our achievements in this world. And so we worship that thing. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy our hope in the gospel by reminding us of all the things that we've done wrong, of all the reasons why we don't deserve the love of God. That we're not good enough, that we need to do better, that we need to work harder, and if we don't, God will forsake us. But Jesus tells us that he has come to give us life, and not only just life, but abundant life. And then we see here, hold fast to the word of life means that when that we treat God's word, his commands, his wisdom, his scriptures, like water, like air, 
like food. That we would suffocate and die without it. That we would actually believe that Satan's intention, his chief motivation and motive is to kill, steal, and destroy us. And that the antidote in that is to cling to the word of life. God's word is truth, and this truth sanctifies us. It guides us. It protects us. It empowers us to overcome the temptation of sin. Living in the world opens up a whole host of temptation to grow hard hearts, to become prideful. Every single day, we are attacked by opportunity to abandon the word of life. And so Paul says, work hard at pursuing the scriptures and digesting them in soaking in them in applying these words to your life in getting to know the character and nature of God following him don't abandon the word of life hold fast make this a priority my friends make this a priority spending time if you give yourself to anything give yourself to the Lord to get to know him And by doing that, you will you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works and both wills and to work all of his good pleasure. It is, it is by this God works in us. We make ourselves available for him to transform us into the image of Jesus. God's word is food that nourishes our life. Do you believe that? Work at that. The last one is work on being sacrificial servants. Paul compares himself to a drink offering. He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. This kind of drink offering he's talking about is, is involved in, in wine being poured onto an altar as a sacrifice. Wine being poured out for God. It was this vivid illustration of a life poured out for God and his service. And so Paul encourages us to emulate him as he's doing that, to this, this same kind of joyful service. He says, be joyful with me as you are sacrificing yourself for others, not using your gifts and your resources for your own advantage, but also for the advantage of others. We just got done last week talking so much about this. Our gospel, our good news of, of, of salvation becomes too small when we make it only about our personal salvation. The gospel's too small when we only talk about I believe and therefore I am saved and I have avoided the wrath of God and now I'm with him forever. We cannot put a period on the end of that sentence. We need to keep going. We need to flesh this out. What does this mean? Do you see that when we are working out our salvation, we're, we're going in a certain direction, we're moving, we're being propelled forward? When we understand the gospel, we're provoked to move. First is we're, 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 we're provoked to move upward towards God and reliance on Him. We're provoked to move inward as we look at our heart and seek to be transformed and grow in righteousness and holiness as we are obedient to Jesus. We, we want to look more like Jesus and have the mind of Christ, and so we work hard at that. We're being propelled outward as we serve others. The gospel is moving. 
It's always moving in a, in a direction, up, in, or out. It's not just sitting there saying, I, I'm so thankful I'm going to heaven. It's moving. It's propelling us. And this is different than moving on or just walking on eternal eggshells. It's a zealous, ambitious, all-out, passionate pursuit of Jesus. It is a joyful, grace-motivated effort. And so let's not forget, it is a fearful, trembling thing to take up the cross of Christ. But Jesus says we must do it, and so Paul insists on it, that we must do it. We cannot stop trusting in Jesus at conversion. We must keep trusting in him, walking by faith, following him, feeling the weight of the cross in our life each day, knowing that God is at work in us. He's at work in you. As you pick up your cross in the morning and say, God, my life is for you. Let it be poured out as, a, as an offering. Use me in whatever way brings glory to you. I submit my life, not just this area of my life, I submit my life to you. He will work through us. He will work in us. And we believe that the suffering, whatever suffering we encounter, will be very worth it. We believe we are saved. The gospel is that simple, but it is not that small. So where is he moving you? Where is the gospel moving in your life? Where ought there be a change, a repentance? Will you trust him as he's moving? Where is he calling you to trust in him as you look upward? Where does he, what is he wanting to deconstruct in your heart and to change? What area of your life is there sin where, where God is saying, I want that part of your life to look like Jesus? And where is he calling you to serve? pouring out your life for the benefit and advantage of others. Let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.